Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We do praise You for being an awesome God. Father, I I do pray that we would never take for granted Your Spirit that sustains us, maintains us, and gives us life. Father, we as Your children and believers, Father, need to have that to be our umbilical cord. Our lifeline is Your Spirit. And Father, even the world that rejects You still needs to understand that You are the giver of life. And Father, um, by every breath that we have, it is a gift from you. And I pray that we would take the things that we have, give glory back to you and praise you with our lives. We do thank you, Father, for the labor that you have spent on us this labor day, that we can rest from our works and that we can enjoy the good things that you have provided for us. Be here today, Father. Open our hearts and our minds. Prepare us to enter into communion with you. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, If we've been going uh, through the book of Luke, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we've been laboring to come to this point in our lives where now all of a sudden there's a twist in the the book. The, 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 The gospel is now taking a change. And instead of Jesus coming in and speaking with examples and parables, you're now going to see where Jesus puts a little meat on the bone. He's now going to take this thing home And he's going to say, watch me do what I have been teaching. And from really from here on out, Jesus is going to be focused on and targeting the cross. He's going to go home to know that he's going to to, to die in Jerusalem. He's facing Jerusalem. And his teaching in his life is now going to say, the example I set is going to be the reality of me coming and, and, and landing this plane. And when it touches down, it's going to be at that cross where we're going to see the reality of Jesus being all the things that we cannot be. He's talked about the sower that would go forth and sow the seed. And some of the seed would fall on bad soil, some of it on shallow soil, some of it would be amongst the weeds, but some of it would bear forth fruit. And now you're starting to see that Jesus would be that seed Himself to say, watch when I'm planted what comes blossoming out of me. And so it's, it's not just a, a guilt trip thrown on us. It's, it's Jesus setting an example. And, and so if you would, I kind of like that analogy of we said that when we started the book of Luke that, that God was entering back into the world, the land of the Jews, if you would, to a cold and stale place. The, the, the nation of Israel didn't understand who God was. It was foreign to the Jews themselves. We saw Zacharias in the, in, in the temple and here he is presenting his gifts and his sacrifices and, and then an angel shows up and he's flipped out over an angel. And we said that's just like how the book of Genesis starts. And we said where the God comes over, the, he's hovering over the the, the planet, if you would, over the surface of the earth. And, and, and it was formless and void. And, and God sees 
you and I is a dead, cold, stale life. And, he, and, and, and as He's hovering over us, if you would, there's almost a time where the hovering now comes down into a descent, into a final approach. And Jesus says, now I'm entering, I'm coming into a life. And God just doesn't hang over us, if you would. He, he wants to come in and penetrate and work in our lives. And, and where God and man touch, you always think of that famous painting by... I don't know whoever it was where the, where's God and, and man are touching and there's the two hands that are coming down and Michelangelo paints that on the 16th chapel. Is it the 16th? Sistine. Sistine. Sissies, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so you see that famous picture and you almost want to say where, where God and man are, are touching is really the place of contact is the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and that point of contact is where Jesus is saying, I'm landing this puppy right here. I'm coming and in, in, in getting involved in your life. And Jesus isn't uh, 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 something aloof. It's a, it's a solid, tangible point of contact where we see that God is working to care for you and I. And so now everything is, is focusing. And He says... Uh, he says verse 28 is about where we left off in chapter 19. And uh, he just finished teaching on a parable. And uh, now he's coming in. He says, and when he had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And, uh, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage that in Bethany at the mount, mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples... So we have to see that Jesus is coming down on the mount called Olivet or, or the Mount of Olives. This is the hill, uh, the mountain on the east side of Jerusalem. And almost if you would, you're seeing Him coming down and making the descent into Jerusalem. Even though you always go up to Jerusalem, he's, you know, because it's a high point, if you would, around the area. But here it is, is this mountain off to the side that would be a protector of it. And you're almost seeing Jesus coming down. And descending, he's there on the Mount of Olives, off to the one side. And as he's coming in, he says he's going to take and, and he sent out two of his disciples as spies to go before him, if you would, as ambassadors to represent him to go on a secret mission. He's going to take two of his guys and say, "Hey, verse 30, saying, go into the village opposite you, and uh, where you are." Where as you enter, you will find a colt tied. Little baby donkey there. Young donkey. On which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And I like this part. He says, verse 31, And if anyone asks of you, Hey, what are you loosening? What are you doing with my little colt there? Who said you could touch my, my colt? He says, thus you shall say to him, eh, because the Lord has need of it. That's why I'm taking it. So those who were sent their way found it, just as he uh, had said to them. And as they were loosening the colt, sure enough, the owners of it, and they come out with their shotgun in hand, and they're going, hey, why are you loosening the colt? And they go, well, the Lord has need of them. And they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their clothes on the, on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. So we're now seeing that Jesus is going to make his entry to Jerusalem. 
And as he's entering into Jerusalem, the timing was critical, but also to have Scripture fulfilled in Zechariah 9.9, you're seeing it says that your king, your Messiah, would come riding on a colt, lowly and humble. And so if you would, to fulfill Scripture, Jesus says, I need to get me a possession. I need something. And I, I always read this whenever we teach through any of the Gospels. It's not quite highlighted in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke always seem to bring out this one strange story. And I always think of this story as the strangest story I could ever imagine. I, I can't fathom that. that. That would be like today, Jesus walking up and saying, Hey, Dave, I want you, I need to get something in my life. I need, I need to have a possession. I want you to, I need to, the scripture says I need to come into Dodge City on a, in a Chevy. So, Dave, go get me a Chevy. I want you to walk down Livingston Avenue, and when you see a Chevy parked in someone's driveway, I want you to go in and start to hotwire the thing. And as you're sitting there in the guy's driveway, hotwiring a Chevy, and the guy comes out with a shotgun and says, Hey, what you doing with my Chevy? You turn around and you respond and you say, Hey, God needs this Chevy. And at which point the guy would turn around and says, Oh, okay. And he'd let you take the Chevy out of his driveway. Now, if that be true, first off I go, Why is this in the Gospels? <laughs> Isn't this a strange story? And especially when it's repeated in each one of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke anyway, the Synoptic Gospels. And I'm going, That's a strange story. And I look at that and I go, is that, is, that, is, is that because, you know, it's showing kind of how God works through people and God's going to show that He's going to provide for the needs and, and in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus is sending out this. It just has to be scripturally fulfilled. And it isn't amazing that here would be some people with their hearts that would be so soft that would turn around and, 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 and donate their their pony to the cause. They're 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 a little baby colt. They're young donkey. And and you're going you know, in, in today in, in that society that was a very powerful possession. It would be like having a Chevy a car. Everyone has a car today. Everyone would have a beast of burden if you would to help them through. And yet we could relate to it as, you know what, that's something that's important. Why would Jesus go up and grab it? And why is Jesus saying go down and just, you know, take it without even asking permission? I find that weird. I find it weird that Jesus, when He comes through town, He doesn't sit down and says, well, in order to fulfill Scripture, uh, we need to get a donkey fund going. And we need to have a donkey. So let's you know, pass the hat and go up and buy a donkey. And everyone would say, in order to fulfill Scripture, and the Lord has need of it, everybody chip in and let's go buy a donkey. He's not saying any of that. He's not even going up and he's not even saying, well, you know, walk down the street and when you find somebody, go up and knock on the door and ask him and say, is it okay if we borrow your donkey for the day? The Lord's going to need it. Hey, he'll be dead next week, so it won't be long. You know, why don't you just give over your little uh, colt for, the, for, this, for this important event? None of that is said. I, 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 I find it amazing if you wanted to be critical when Abraham was up on the hill, up on the, the mount, offering up his son and 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 Isaac and he was going to put the knife in his own son and 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 Abraham turns around and he says you know hey look there's a a ram caught in the thicket god has provided for himself the sacrifice that was needed and so you know god if he wanted to could say well if jesus needed a donkey why didn't he have the donkey's ear caught in the thicket over there and 
voila, you know, he would have a donkey. And yet you're seeing almost a, a real... Go up to the guy, don't ask permission, take. Take first. And then, if anybody comes up and questions, when the guy's coming out with a shotgun, you just tell him God needs it. What a vague answer. Hey, the Lord needs it. So if some guy's out there, you know, stealing your car, and he, he says, hey, the Lord needs it, you go, no, he don't. <laughs> God ain't telling you to steal. God ain't telling you to take something. And I look at that whole scenario, and I said, Lord, you know, this is just a bizarre way to approach Jerusalem. And, and, and yet, they seem to want to inject this story because I believe it is showing, first and foremost, that, that God is very, listen to this, He's very proactive. God is doing a, a work that is saying, I'm, I'm going to go get something. I'm not going to wait for this to come falling into my lap. I'm not waiting, listen to this, I'm not waiting for man to have his day when he's ready for me. No, quite the opposite. When God does a work, He's a proactive God. And it is almost as if He wants to inject Himself and to, and to say, this is the way things are going to be. Do you want to get on board with it? And that's a completely kind of different approach. I can sometimes see that, that, that God is very patient. I think God started the nation of Israel with the best intentions. He gave them the law. He gave them certain things. And I, I believe that, that He has been extremely patient with mankind until finally there comes a day when He says, no more patience. I need to be proactive. I need to go grab hold of something. And God's program doesn't stop and wait for man. You have to hear that part. And as Jesus says, I'm in need of something. And, and I, I would hope this doesn't get whacked into some weird teaching that the pastor's saying that we now have rights to go grab everything that we want and then just ask for forgiveness later. It, it, it almost would sound that that's the way that it is, but you have to look at the context of the scenario of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And, and he is really saying, hey, I need something. I need a cult. I need to ride in on Jerusalem. Today's the day of my visitation, if you would. This is the way that I have it. And he sends two guys to go out and get it. You're seeing a proactive, a proactive move of Jesus. Forward, not reactive, but proactive. Verse 37. Watch several things that are happening here. And he says, And then, uh, as they're throwing their coats and they're all sitting down there getting excited about Jesus, and they're making this, you know, red carpet approach for Jesus to come marching in. And it says, Then as he was now drawing near uh, the descent down at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So it's very important. They're saying, you know, this Jesus guy is different. We've watched him raise the dead. We've watched him feed the multitudes. We've watched him walk on water. We've watched him cast out the demons out of the pigs. There's something different about this guy. We talked about how they were anticipating a confrontation, and these people are saying, Jesus, you are different. And they're, they're screaming it, and they're raising up their voices, and they're saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Very important. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to Him from the crowd, the religious Jewish people. Teacher, you rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be talking like this. And He answered and He said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And I like that part. So Jesus is now receiving this praise and glory. There's a lot of things that are happening in this scenario of what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus on His triumphal entry. He's now coming into Dodge City to have the showdown at high noon. And here He is. He's sitting down there. And as He's coming in, these people are just lauding praises on Him. And Jesus is going to accept that praise. A lot of things are in the story. You've got to understand a little background. They're singing some specific quotes out of a verse. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a direct quote out of Psalm 118. So Chris quoted Psalm 121. Then he went down to 119. And now we're into Psalm 118. So we're all kind of close. But Psalm 118 is it's kind of weird. It's called the Hallel. It's the last of five of the Psalms in a row that comes down to 18. And if you would, this was going into Passover season. And Passover for us, for all intents and purposes, to make an example of what it does to society was like our Christmas. And during Christmas, you notice that we have the Christmas carols that come jingling forth out of our lips and everybody hears the Christmas music when they walk through the mall and then they know it's time to start buying, you know, Uncle Wiggly a present. And there's certain things that are tripping in our mind. And what the Jews would do as it comes into Passover, they would sing these five songs. It was called the Hallel. A psalm is a song. And these were the words to the song that they would sing. And they're now turning around. And, and Jesus, it's almost like he's saying, you know that Christmas carol? You know, here it is. It's Christmas and this is what's going on, you know. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. For Christ the Savior was born this very day. And he'd almost be like saying, don't you know what it's all about? Here I am, you know, this is what we're supposed to... It's, it's almost like this is a, a song that, that's just... You shut your mind off and would sing and you wouldn't think about. And Jesus is turning around and He's saying, you know that song? This is what that's about. Me coming to Jerusalem today. I'm now coming to fulfill certain Scripture. Now, the Pharisees would say, oh, wait a second, that scripture's about the Messiah coming. We're singing about a future event, and you are trying to tell me that that's you? You? And they're going up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know, knock this off. Tell your guys to be quiet. They shouldn't be up there singing this in this tone in this way about you. Yeah, you've done some wonderful things, but you're coming in here as the Messiah. Give me a break. And notice, if you would, Jesus turns around and says, well, you know what? <laughs> If, if you Jews are that blind, and if man were blind, God would still make up for that deficiency and have these rocks. They're going to sit down and all these little rocks around. They're going to start screaming out the voice because God is doing a wonderful, major work right here. He's bringing in the Messiah, and if you are blind to it, God is not. And once again, what man does not provide, God does. You're seeing a very common theme through some of these events that we take place in. That, that God is going to provide for man and say, even if, if man were to miss it, God would have the rocks fill this void because something big is going on. Jesus is coming in. The Holy Spirit is moving. 
And there's, a, there's, there's some play here about coming down out of the Mount of Olives, which was where the Garden of Gethsemane was, which is where you can sit down and see that God is, is working up here on this east hill, which was famous for its olives, which was famous for growth, which was famous to sit down and say, this is where a harvest could be gathered from. And I like there's a little symbolism there of Jesus saying, what grows out of my garden is what? Praises to God. And I, for the life of me, would like to think our church understands that what God wants out of us as a harvest is praise giving glory back to Jesus. Church is kind of weird. We, 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 we kind of, it's a little deceptive what we do at our church. A lot of people would like to think that the most important part of the sermon or uh, the church service is the sermon. And I have said it over and over and over again that the sermon is really instruction if you looked at it. We're reading through the Bible, we're receiving instruction, and then the $64 question is instruction to do what? It's instructing you to get your life right with God so that you could come before God so that you could praise God. The real church service starts at 9 o'clock. And from 9 to 9.30 is when we're actually entering into what real church is. We're all giving praise and glory to God. And hopefully we're not just singing along with the band, but we're singing to God and we're lifting up our praises to God. That's the net result of what God is trying to harvest is you to open up your heart and to say, Oh, Lord, I give all my glory, all my life, and I'm singing to you that I love you. So the result of all the instruction is to bring you to a place of giving praise to God. And I like this. What's coming out of the garden, what's coming out of the Mount of Olives, what's coming out of is God is gathering together a harvest so that He could bring forth praise. And please understand that, that God wants to do a mighty work and that the result of this is people are saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Peace in in heaven and glory to the highest. Those are the words that God is desiring to get out of your lips. And when you start to praise Him, you are starting to fulfill your mandate as a believer. So we go into verse 41. And now, as He drew near, He saw the city and He wept over it. So Jesus is riding down on the donkey. People are giving Him praise. You'd think that this would be, oh, happy day. And Jesus starts to cry. And He's saying, oh, guys... Jerusalem, i got a handful of people here. This should be the biggest day that you've been waiting for. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. So Jesus is saying, man, you guys should understand that the Messiah is coming in, fulfilling Scripture down to the day that you know Daniel prophesied. And that's a whole long story of the place and the time and the day that was all set up and Israel was blind to it. And he's going, man, you're missing something. If you had known, even you, <laughs> there's a little dig in there, especially in your day, the things that uh, make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And Jesus is saying this with tears in His eyes. He says, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children within you uh, to the ground. 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. So, Jesus is sitting down there broken over Jerusalem. He's seeing, he's trying to be proactive and he's saying, I'm doing a work here. God's entering in and you are blind to it. And because you're blind to what God is doing, you are going to be destroyed. There was a window of opportunity in your life and you didn't grab hold of it. And that's the hardest part of being a Christian is to recognize that God wants to do something wonderful in my life and then sometimes to recognize that I'm the one that shot myself in the foot. I, I, I hate that. That scares me. That bothers me. Lord, you're telling me that I'm the one and the truth be known, if I looked at my life many times, God has beckoned me to raise the, the level of my life another notch and I miss the opportunity. And sometimes we have to believe that God can do wonderful things and we always need to be able to respond with, yes, Lord, let's go forward. But please, if you would notice that this, this, this passage in other texts sometimes even uses the term of a, a mother hen gathering her chicks. And God is sitting down there saying, you know, I really just wish I could gather you together. And you're watching, if you would, where God is moving, things are happening, and God's starting to gather things together. And so then He went into the temple and He began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So, most times we read this story, we can hear the thing of Jesus with a whip. And, and notice Luke is silent about the whip. He's not telling us about a whip. He's not talking about this type of a scenario. He's only trying to say that Jesus is coming in to rectify, to straighten out the problem that the people of, of Israel had strayed from prayer and they made it into a, a money market. They would buy and sell and it got to be so that you just had to give up so much money in order to come to God. And there's a whole lot to be said for what they're doing, but basically it, it turns out that they're putting money in thievery ahead of God. And Jesus is just merely trying to say that's not the way it's supposed to be. It says, verse 47, that he was teaching daily in the temple. Every single day he'd go down and teach in the, in the temple. But the chief priests, the religious people of the day, the scribes, the people that were educated and knew how to copy the law, and the leaders, just, you know, the civic leaders of the people, they're all going to gather together in harmony because they're going to seek out and they sought to destroy him. They hated Jesus because why? He's uh, touching their little golden goose of making money. This religion was very profitable and Jesus is coming over and saying, why don't we just make it so it's a God thing and some people just don't want to hear that. And yet they're stuck in a situation, it says, and they were unable to do anything. They wanted to kill Jesus, but they couldn't for all the people were very attentive to hear him. 
So you're turning around and you're looking at this where the people, the man on the street, is eating up the words of Jesus. They're going, man, this is awesome. Jesus, you're telling us the truth. And finally, somebody here who's not to, to take advantage of me, you're here to tell me the truth, and I'm sucking this up. And the people were just swarming around Jesus. And those very people who were putting dollars and cents into the coffers, if you would, uh, uh, the people that received that money are now turning around and being greedy and upset and angry. And hence, you're going to see the, the train wreck that's going to happen between the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees and, and, and the religious leaders and Jesus with pure love trying to set people free. And you're going to watch the collision and it turns into hatred in their hearts with that would even turn them into a murderer to grab hold of it. So... The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they were supposed to be on a direction of caring and loving and sharing for other people, and yet somebody seemed to grab hold of the driver's seat of God's vehicle and they hijacked it to take it for their own motives. And it just seems like so many times when there's a pure work of God that so many people come in and they want to hijack it to gain hold of it. I, I get tired of people that call me up Oh, Pastor Dave, I, I want you to get a petition so that everybody in your church would sign a petition for blah, 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 blah. Pastor Dave, I want you to announce to your congregation blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of people that call me throughout the week and it's almost like they just have this idea that somehow or another if they can grab hold of my heart and my mind over whatever cause that they have, that somehow or another all the other minions that are underneath me will now follow me and all go shopping at Walmart together. And, and you're going, hey, wait a second. I don't have control over my congregation to get them to vote or get them to do this or get them to buy this or get them to go rally together. And a lot of people, they look, if us Christians could unite, we could then conquer the problem. We must unite and gather together to sign a petition to go fight some cause. And it's the mentality of somehow or another that, that everybody is just connected and that they're just minions of a power source. And I despise that. I really think that, that somehow or another we need to be people that are liberated by the Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit moves through each individual, whatever cause and purpose of the Lord will be manifested. And it's a shame that everybody gives me a cheap hustle of a sales pitch because they think that everyone's going to follow my direction. And you're going, that's not the way church is set up. That's not the way you people should be thinking. I would hope that you would never say, well, pastor said so, I must do this. I have to shop at Walmart. And, and, and gee, we'll wake up. Have the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit leads you to Walmart, well, praise the Lord. You know what I mean? If the... <laughs> If you walk into a Walmart and you get a vexed feeling as you walk through the door and you feel guilt and condemnation, well then, listen to it and stay away from it, you know? I really don't care about Walmart. It's not my job to liberate or to destroy Walmart. And yet there's this thinking, this mindset of everybody unite together to fight. And Jesus is turning around and says, you know, this whole thing of people trying to grab hold of the work of God so they can capitalize it for their vision, their desire, it's a wicked drug. And, and we have to turn around and say, you know, God's doing a work. You have to put your trust into God and where and what He's doing. You can't railroad it, hijack it into the things that you want for yourself. Let the Lord do His work, please. So we go into chapter 20. 
And now it happened on one of those days as he taught in the temple, uh, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the good news that set people free, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. Showdown. And he spoke to him saying, Hey, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or, or who is it that gave you this authority? Hey, Jesus, you're in here knocking over the tables. You're grabbing a whip. You're straightening things out. And you're ripping us apart. Who said you could do that? I don't know what it is about men. They have to have some place of a, of a, of a, of a seat of, a, of, a, of authority. People do that in the church all the time. You know, it's like, hey, who told you you could move that table over there? Well, why'd you move that table over from this side to the other side? You're not supposed to move into. Who told you? And if you say, well, Pastor Dave told me. Oh, well, then that's good. Well, I can't argue with that. And, and somehow or another, we think in terms of authority. We think in terms of this. And they're asking him, Jesus, you're in here assaulting us, the Jews. Who said you could do this? Well, what power? What authority? What gives you the right to do this? And Jesus, he answered and he said to them, oh, Well, hey, since you're asking questions, let me ask you a question. I also will ask you one thing. And you answer me. He says, The baptism of John, uh-oh, was it from heaven or from men? And it tells you right away, it says, uh, And they reasoned among themselves. They scratched the, they scratched their heads, they're thinking, and they go, Uh-oh, mm-hmm. If we say from heaven, John the Baptist, the guy who turned around and announced that Jesus was the Messiah, that was a, a righteous prophet and was telling people about repentance. And, and man, he's, he's the one that said Jesus was the... They go, well, he goes, uh, uh, he says, uh, if we say from heaven, okay, that John the Baptist was a true bona fide man of God, he will say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because, well, Jesus is coming in as the Messiah. We'd have to respect what John the Baptist was. Oh, but if we say, oh, from men, that John the Baptist, he was just a, a man of his own vain imaginations, yelling and screaming out there as a madman. Uh-oh, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they're going, uh-oh, we're stuck in a pickle. Oh, well, you know, what's the authority? And, uh, you know, we can't answer this question without looking like a fool. And so they answered, uh, well, uh, we don't know. Don't know, not sure where it was from. Let's do the typical response of plain stupid when the fact of the matter is they know the truth. And so many people go, oh, I don't want to really think about that because if I think about that for a little bit, I might have to actually come to the conclusion that I'm wrong. So I won't think. And in a sense, it's telling you, that, that, that what they're doing is just a game. It's a false religion. It's a money-making thing. And they know in their heart of hearts, they know in their heart of hearts that they're wrong. And so many people, when you confront them with the gospel and the good news and you tell them the truth of Jesus Christ, they hem and they haw, they fight, and they come up with every lame excuse on why they can't. And the truth of the matter is, is in their heart of hearts, they know. They're in rebellion and, and so it says, and, and Jesus said to them, well, if you just want to play games with me, nah, 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 neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm not going to even entertain the game that you're doing. I don't know. This, this sounds almost like Jesus is, is evasive. 
Jesus is not being uh, 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 jumping right into these things, but I think Jesus is just saying, you know what, if you want to play games, then you go play games and don't think you're fooling or impressing anyone. It doesn't get by anybody. Our arguing from this point is only in vain. Give it up. You're not listening. It would be illogical for me on my part to continue to debate with you. We're going nowhere. This is over with, says Jesus. Verse 9, And then he began to tell the parable, uh, tell the parable, tell the people this parable. Sorry. Uh, he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. So that's a whole bunch of grapes. And uh, as this guy is planting a vineyard, he leased it, rented it out to vine dressers. Kind of a biblical term for people that work in the vineyard, right? They dressed up the place and, uh, and, and farmed the land. And this guy, he went off to a far country for a long time, the owner. And he left it in other people's hands. And he says, now at vintage time. So it's now in the fall. They should be gathering the grapes. And he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he's turning around and says, you know what, you got my property. I'm letting you work it. Don't you think I should get a good old bottle of wine out of this? Why don't you send me over a couple bottles of wine? You know, I've been generous. I've been letting you do this. Fair is fair. I get to have a little bit of the profits of this. Give me some of the fruit of the vineyard. I want some grapes. I'd like to sit down there and have a glass of wine. But the vine dressers, they turn around and they beat him, this, this servant. So the guy turns around and he sends a, a guy, a servant to the vine dressers. He says, hey, it's time to pay up. And they turn around and says, we're not paying up. We're just going to beat the tar out of you, the servant. You're going to shoot the messenger. And they're going to send him away empty-handed. Well, the guy comes back and says, guess what, boss? They ain't paying up and I got the tar beat out of me. We ain't getting nothing. Well, I guess the boss turned around and says, maybe my messenger was uh, rude or offensive. I'll send another servant. We'll send them. Well, same result. They beat him also. He comes back with a tar beat out of him. And they treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Get out of here! And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. We're not paying the rent. Everything that's ours is ours. It's a hostile takeover. So the owner of the vineyard, now he's coming down and says, I don't know what else I can do. What shall I do? I'm going to send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. He's going to inherit everything. Come, let's kill him. Their bloodthirsty anger comes out that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Wow. Therefore, Jesus asked the question, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to them? <laughs> Just killed his son. Doesn't want to pay the taxes. Well, pretty obvious. He's going to come and he's going to destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Duh! And so if you would, the parable speaks clearly of God who has entrusted his, 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 his care into Israel to care for a piece of property. The Jews had a responsibility and obviously, God is instilling into the nation of Israel uh, 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 the care for the world to spread the good news of who God is through the law that was given through Moses. And nevertheless, they turned around and they perverted the work of God into their own thievery for themselves. 
And so God sends a prophet. He sends two prophets. He sends three prophets. That's the way the Old Testament is. The Old Testament in a, in a nutshell is you, have, is you have the law. Moses comes in and he says, look, this is what you need to do. You better do this, 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 and this. And you better not do this, 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 and this. If you want to be God's children, you stay away from these things and you better do this. So Israel says, okay, we'll do it. They'd be bopped through life a few hundred years go by and then what happens? God sends them a prophet. And what does a prophet say? Hello? Uh, you guys are not doing what Moses told you to do. You have failed miserably to show love and compassion and mercy to the other people in this world and you are becoming greedy and stingy. Israel rejects that. Kill the guy! What do they do? God sends another prophet and another prophet and another prophet until finally he says, I'm profited out. It's now time to send my son into the world. And when they see my son, surely the miracles that Jesus can do and the wonderful things that are happening, anybody's going to recognize that they need to be right with God and maybe they've just become greedy. So the parable speaks a loud picture and it's also a prophetic example of Jesus saying, I know how this story ends. You're going to kill me. You don't care about anything. You're a greedy person. And if you would, it almost really clearly shows that man uh, 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 wants to and have the, the yoke of God off his back. Mankind hates the responsibility of being accountable to God. We want to think, you know, I'll take care of my own life. I don't need God in my life. I don't need God telling me what to do. You know, get out of here, God. And every time the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us an ounce of conviction and that we really start to feel empty and lonely and saying, Lord, maybe I need you in my, my life, it's almost like the counterbalance comes in and wells up inside of us a sense of pride and says, no, I won't. God tells me to live a certain way. I don't want to live that way. Get out of here. Shut up. I'll do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm a man of my own destiny. And man wants to shake the yoke of God's off of his back. And, and no matter how God sees that, whenever he comes into our life, he ratchets up the pressure. pressure. He, he cranks it up a few notches and he says, no, I love you, I care about you, I want you. And man equally will turn around and ratchet up the hatred in his heart till he becomes irrational, stupid and ignorant and do the foolish things where he turns into a murderer. And so, as, 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 as the harder you resist God the harder God seems to influence you in this world. And He's coming after you. He he's wants to sit down and be proactive in your life and He wants to do a mighty work in your life. And He says, uh, uh, he says, uh, You'll come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they go, Oh no, certainly not! What are you talking about? We don't like where this is going. And He looked at them and He said, what then is this that is written? If you can't handle that truth and you just want to deny my little parable as an example, he says, let's choke on this. And once again, he quotes out of Psalm 118, the little Christmas carol. And he turns around and he says, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is going, do you know the little Christmas carol you sing all the time? This is exactly what we've been saying. This is exactly what's been going on. Would you wake up and see what's in front of you? And then he turns around and he says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. 
And so if you would, Jesus is turning around and he's trying to make a very simple analogy to say, you know what, you have to come to God and be broken. You have to come to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've failed. I need help. I need a Savior. And when Jesus comes riding into town, what should you be saying? Thank you, Lord, for bringing the Deliverer. I am so happy. And if you can't accept the concept that you need to be saved, then it's your pride in your life that is stopping you, stopping you from moving forward. And all you're doing is continuing a fight, a fight with God. And so he's turning around and he says, hey, there's a stone. This stone which the builders rejected when they were building the temple. They turned around and they take this stone. They look at it. They go, we don't know where it is. And they throw it over the side of the cliff. And then they find out and they said, okay, the building's almost built. We need the cornerstone. And they call back and this is a story from Josephus when they were building what's called Herod's temple, which was under construction during Christ's time and finally being finished. You're seeing that, okay, here comes this new work and they're saying, hey, where's the cornerstone? And they go, well, we, we sent the cornerstone. That was one of the first things we sent you. And they go, well, we didn't get it. And they look over the side of the cliff. They find it buried down there in the thicket and the thorns. And they go, oh, there it is, over the side of the hill. And they have to go drag it back up and then put it into place. And they're going, hey, isn't that strange? That's a perfect, that's a perfect example of what happens in Jesus. So many people, they look at Jesus and they go, oh, I don't want this in my life. I don't want to have the, the guidance or the authority of God in my life. I'd like to shake that authority off and yet you have to realize that when you come to Christ, everything falls completely into place in your life. And you can say, Lord, I was designed by you. I live for you. And I'm going to go home to be with you when I'm done. And our lives as believer is to turn around and to start to have direction in our life. When you're lost in the world, you're aimless. When, 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 you, when you take your... Your life and you say, my life is mine. I'll go where I choose. The next question is as well, where are you going? <laughs> where would you like to, to land this ship? What's your direction? Where do you think you'd like to land with your life? You have your own life. Where are you going with it? Well, uh, uh, wherever I darn well please, that's good enough. Uh, well, uh, you know, don't tell me nothing. I'm just, I'm just going to go. Where? I'm lost and confused. I have no direction. When you are smashed and you give your life to Christ and you say, Lord, now my life will be in alignment. That's what a cornerstone is. It sits there and everything should be on a line. It should be right there where everything's matching up. The architecture of the buildings would come together. And you're saying, now my life has alignment. It has purpose. It has a direction in my life. And Lord, I need to serve and I need to live my life for You. And so Jesus is turning around and there's a... A lot of things that are happening here. But what you're watching in so many words is that Jesus is coming together and he looks, he, He's looking at mankind. God is looking at mankind. And He wants to, he wants to as a, that, the owner of the vineyard, He's saying, I, my desire is that I have a good glass of wine when I have a drink at the end of the day. There's, there's, there's a concept in Revelation chapter 14. Of, of, of God coming over the planet. And he's, he's standing back looking at the planet and He's saying, look, this whole thing is a vineyard and I want to be able to go in, reap a harvest, if you would, take those grapes, gather them together. And it's very interesting. Look at the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And you've seen that what Jesus is saying in so many words with the vine dresser is he's saying, you know, God wants to first... You're going to see two scenes when he's on the Mount of Olives. This scene where he's coming down off of the Mount of Olives. And what does he want to do? He wants to gather together the grapes, the olives, whatever the, the, the harvest of the vineyard would be. And then he's going to turn around. And then you see him the next time in the garden. What is he doing? He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He's praying that he has drops of blood sweating out of him. And he's saying, Lord... Let not my will be done, but thine. And at the garden is where you have the wine press that comes in and crushes and, and crushes the grape. And so God, if He's sitting down there and He's desiring a glass of wine out of the souls of men, first He wants to gather them together. Then He wants to go into our life. And what does He want to do? He wants to crush them. And then finally, as they're crushed, you would take that, you would put that on the shelf and you would allow it to ferment. And then after it fermented, it would become aged wine. And then you could take that off of the shelf and then you would be able to enjoy a glass of wine. And really what you're seeing in the, in the garden that Jesus is planting as a seed, He's now saying God's looking for a harvest. And what God is doing is He's looking at you and I and He's saying, I'm looking for a harvest out of you. Do I, do I get a glass of wine? Are you going to be something that's going to be God can look at and drink? And if you're not crushed, you're just going to become rotten, sour grapes. And, and God is trying to produce something of an aged wine. I know we think of wine and we think we're Christians. We're never supposed to touch wine and it's just, you know, the devil's nectar. I like that term. Someone used that in the church a few years ago. The devil's nectar. That's what all that alcohol is. And yet there's, there's, you know, Psalm 104, which says clearly God made wine to put a smile on man's face. You have a hard time getting around that. You got a hard time getting around sometimes where it says in Isaiah 25, 6, he says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine and choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. God, when he throws a party, guess what's there? He's got nice, you know, roast beef, prime rib, whatever you got. And then he's going to give you a nice glass of wine. We go to heaven, we're going to get a glass of wine, aged wine. And you see this picture of God. He's coming in and he's trying to, he's trying to produce something. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's there with the wine press. He's there watching a garden grow. And he's looking and he's saying, I want to produce something. And, and as, you, as I'm coming down and I've given Israel a responsibility to produce, they're turning around and they're in rebellion against God. They're saying, no, God, we won't do what you want to do. We're going to throw the yoke off of us. We don't want to acknowledge that we were created. We want to run everything ourselves. Mankind is stubborn and obstinate. And what we need to do to be a choice vessel of God is to be broken and to say, Lord, not my will be done, but thine. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus says, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Lord... If this cup could pass, let it be so. I don't want to drink of the cup. You hear that? He's saying there's a cup right here that to drink. And in order to, to have this glass of wine, I must be crushed. And the stone that is the cornerstone of our life, we have to either be broken on that or it is going to smash us to pieces. Let's read a little bit. We've got a few extra minutes before we go into communion. Let's read Revelation 14, verse... We'll start off on 6. 
I just want to look at a few of the tie-ins here for a few things. See if I'm hallucinating or not, but watch some of the tie-ins. He says, And I saw another angel, Revelation 14.6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. And uh, so this angel's flying around, flapping its wings, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. He's going to tell everybody something. And to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, a universal message goes out. And he said with a loud voice, this is what it is, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Give your life to God. And another angel, a second one followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations, listen to this, drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So we're seeing you can serve God with your life and repent and come to know Him, or you can drink of another type of wine, the wine of this world that people get drunk in and on and are deceived. Babylon, the fallen world, the, the, the empire that is developed out of mankind's ambitions, has a, a, a drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality, her sexual sins. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's not good wine to drink. Wrath is God's anger which is mixed in full strength, buddy. We're not watering this stuff down. In the what? In the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Wow! And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Not just a couple days. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. So if you want to survive perseverance, go make it to the end. Stay away from the Babylonians. Stay away from the pain of this world and turn around and just say, hey, look, I want to come to know the Lord. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow with them. And I looked and behold, a white cloud. Happy days on white clouds, right? And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. And he, he's having a golden crown on his head. And so it's almost a picture of Jesus. It could be an angel. I'm not going to really define it, but it's a happy scene. He's got a crown on his head, but the guy's also got a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple and crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Hey, you over there sitting over there with a sickle in your hand. Take your sickle and reap. Stick it into that planet earth. For the hour to reap or harvest has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he's looking at the earth and he's saying it's a vineyard and, and I want you to take that sickle and just... Pluck it right in there and grab hold of some of those nice, rich, ripe grapes. 
And he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Swoosh! And another angel came out from the temple which is in heaven. Another angel. And he also had a sharp sickle. Angel number two. He doesn't have a white cloud and a little gold crown. No, he's just sitting down there looking for business. And the other angel, the one who has power over heaven or over fire, the other angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Like a like Nathan in his diaper sometimes gets ripe. <laughs> you go, ooh, the kid's ripe, man. You've got to sit down and deal with this thing. And yeah, they're ripe. They're ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle into the earth and he gathered the cluster from the vine of the earth. Oh, he doesn't take them into the, the house for eating. He throws them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. So you're watching, if you would, a, a, a simple analogy of the, 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 the good glass of wine that is there for that aged perfection because it's something that was broken and it's something that yields to, listen to this, the authority of God. If you take your life and yield it over to God's authority and say, Lord, how would you like me to live my life? Where and what should I do with the days that I have? I want to serve you, Lord, and I want to serve you to the fullest. What can I do, Lord, to serve you? Or do you want to throw off the yoke in rebellion against God and says, I will not listen to the voice of God in my life. I will not turn from my evil ways. I will do what I want to do. And at which point, God's saying, you are ripe now for judgment. Throw you into the winepress to crush you into my wrath and my destruction. And the, and the illustration is, is to say, God's looking at the earth. He's looking at the garden and He's saying, man, I want, I want good wine. I'm looking for choice and I'm going to take vessels that are, are to submit underneath my authority. People that are willing to die to themselves. Jesus, as he's taking communion, he says, this cup is the blood that was shed for you and I, for the forgiveness of our sins. He's taking this cup, and I like it. What he says, he says, you will no longer drink with me until we drink again in the kingdom of heaven. He's turning around and he's saying, if you would like to drink wine, I've done the great gathering. Then he goes to the garden of Gethsemane again and he's crushed as he's being broken and he's submitting his life to the Lord himself. And then he's turning around and he says, the next step in the process is when we're in the kingdom of heaven and there's nothing beside that sweet aged wine that is so good and so smooth. And Jesus says, I want to drink that cup again with you. And you can ask yourself and say, Lord, Am I serving you or am I full of rebellion? Lord, I, I want to serve you and love you and give my life to you. We're going to take communion now. And it's real simple. As you are partaking of communion, it's a time for you to commune, to identify and to put your life in tune with where God is and to say, Lord, I, I want to be broken. I want to take this and become one with you. That's what communion is. And as you take communion, there's a washing, a cleansing, the forgiveness of sins that allows us to, to be strengthened to go forward. Amen?
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.